Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 4, Women's Equality Day Special, Contributions and Military History. With me today are my companions and co-hosts, Knight and Walla. Hey, how's everybody doing today? All right. Pretty good. How's it going? Not not bad at all. Not bad at all. Um, back home after a two-day trip across the country, so I'm glad to be here. All right. First off, uh, we would be remiss if we did not again thank Warwick for being our most welcome guest and co-host for episode three, The Great Emu War, last week. We hope you all enjoyed it. And if you haven't given it a listen, please, please take the time to do so. You'll have the opportunity to learn about a war that could only be specific to Australia from two wonderful Australians who have some opposing views on the topic. You will not regret it. Also, head on over to Warwick's Instagram page by searching AMH Podcast. That is Australian Military History Podcast, and give him a follow. All of his episodes can be found by following the Linktree link in his bio. Of note, we are now recording using a new software, specifically Riverside.fm, which should significantly improve the sound quality of our recordings and assist in cleaning up the final product that reaches your, the listener's, ears. Thank you for bearing with us through our production hiccups. All right, we'll get started. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts, by any means, in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. special episode of Hardtack and recognition of Women's Equality Day. This holiday is observed in the United States every year on August 26th. During this episode, we will briefly discuss the origins of Women's Equality Day and the woman who championed the bill in the United States Congress. We will also hear from each of our hosts who have brought their own research on a specific woman and their contributions to military history. Women's Equality Day in the United States was first recognized in 1973. U.S. Congress designated August 26th as the Day of Observance. 
The proposition had been brought before Congress two years prior in 1971 by Bella Abzug, a Democrat and representative for the state of New York. From NationalWomen'sHistoryAlliance.org, the date was selected to commemorate the 1920 certification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted women the right to vote. To give some perspective, the Civil Rights Movement for Women began in 1848 with the world's first women's right convention held in Seneca Falls, New York. For some further perspective, 1848, the American Civil War had not even started. Before we get into the stories of the three women we individually researched, we wanted to give a bit of time to Representative Bella Abzug as she championed August 26th and Women's Equality Day. Abzug was born in the Bronx, New York, on July 24, 1920, to Russian-Jewish immigrants Emanuel and Esther Tankalevsky-Savitsky. She received a Bachelor of Arts in 1942 and immediately entered law school at Columbia University. Of note, Abzug paused her studies voluntarily during World War II to work in a shipyard to support the war effort that being World War II. So that's pretty cool. Uh, when, you, when you consider uh, American history and, and women's contributions to World War II, it, it gives you the Rosie the Riveter vibes. She co-founded Women's Strike Peace, a group dedicated to protesting the nuclear arms race, which followed World War II, and later down the road in protests of American military involvement in Vietnam. As Abzug stated herself, she was more of an activist than a politician. During my research, uh, she was described multiple times by multiple individuals, both male, female, political, and and otherwise, um, as not exactly uh, an inflammatory individual, but she was quite radical for a politician in the 1970s, uh, specifically for a female politician in the 1970s. And she quite radical. I'm sorry. Quite radical. Yes. So uh, Abzug started off. Obviously, she went to law school, um, and she she did some work as a lawyer. Which, yeah, um, some of her so, first. So already she's got some <laughs> fire to her. Yeah. Well, and some of her first her first uh, cases or her first trials where she she was defending an individual uh, were black males, which in the 1950s and 60s, looking at American history with the civil rights movement and and, uh, things not being equal, this was incredibly radical uh, for some people. Um, One case in particular that I I learned about was there was a uh, black man who had been accused of rape and the evidence did not add up. But that was common, unfortunately, uh, in the mid and and early uh, 20th century in in the United States, where black men were often blamed for crimes that they did not commit. And she had an issue with this. She had an issue with this. And um, there's a lot more on that case and and multiple cases that that she took on uh, fighting for minorities that were being unjustly and wrongfully accused uh, by the American justice system at the time. 
All right, so there is a brief and interesting history on Representative Bella Abzug. I do want to highlight the fact that it is brief because there is so much more to this woman's life. Uh, she was obviously quite a force in politics, and I am sure in all areas of her life. You can learn more about Abzug at history.house.gov and abzuginstitute.org, which we will link in the show notes. For even further study, there are several books written on Abzug, one of which I absolutely cannot move forward without mentioning. I found this to be both comical, uh, mind-blowing, but at the same time, I think it was necessary given the fact that this woman was quite radical. The book is an oral history edited by Suzanne Braun Levine, or Levine, and Mary Tom. And if the title doesn't catch your attention, then I don't know if anything about her will. The title is Bella Abzug, How One Tough Broad from the Bronx Fought Jim Crow and Joe McCarthy, Pissed Off Jimmy Carter, <laughs> Battled for the Rights of Women and Workers, Rallied Against War and for the Planet, and Shook Up Politics Along the Way. Fuck so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> quite, the, quite the damn title. <laughs> but again, she was quite the individual. Uh, a link to Amazon for those interested in purchasing or reading a synopsis on this book is also going to be included in the show notes. I, I'll tell you what, the title alone makes me want to buy it. Oh, yeah. I'm looking oh, into yeah. it myself. <laughs> Hell yeah. The crazy thing is, in consideration, I, I, I don't think that the title does more than even scratch the surface. <laughs> I bet it doesn't. <laughs> she sounds wonderful, in my opinion. <laughs> I want to be friends but, with her. She sounds happy. I know. <laughs> All right. She's, she's not somebody to be on her wrong side. No. <laughs> no, she'll come at you. Full force. Guns a-blazing. All right. Now it is time to introduce our first person of interest for this episode. Walla, who has researched an Australian wartime legend known as the White Mouse, is going to teach us a bit about Nancy Wake. Walla, please take it away. I'm very excited to share with everyone Australia's wartime legend, Nancy Wake, or the White Mouse, and her contributions in military history. To bring you her story, I have referred to her autobiography, which she had written and published in 1985. To put her contributions into perspective, she has had three films made about her, she's had several books written about her, and she's also been awarded for her efforts in World War II with several medals and for which there is too many to name, but I will list them in the show notes. Um, but one in particular that I want to mention that is the most significant honor that I believe that she was awarded was the Legion of Honor, which is the highest decoration in France at the time. So you can kind of tell based on um, if you have a look at the show notes and see the medals listed that she had made a significant contribution in World War II. So with that in mind, I felt, especially because she's Australian, well, technically New Zealander, but I'll get into that in a minute. Oh. Um, why I, <laughs> yes, little controversial, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of part of the reason why I wanted to bring her forward because she, she is so prominent in World War II, but often so unheard of. Um, 
Anyway, I also want to give like a quick over, like a uh, quick snapshot before I go into her background, um, about just a little bit about her and her contributions in World War Two. After living and working in Paris in the 1930s, Nancy married a wealthy Frenchman and settled in Marseille. Her idyllic life was ended by World War II and the invasion of France. Her life shattered and Nancy joined the French resistance and later began work as a career with an escape route network for Allied soldiers. Due to her efforts, she had become the Gestapo's most wanted. Eventually, Nancy had to escape from France herself to avoid capture by the Gestapo. In London, after she had escaped, she trained with the Special Operations Executive as a secret agent and saboteur before parachuting back into France and... Hold on. I'm going to cut you there. What? (laughs) She was a secret agent and Mm -hmm. saboteur and parachuted back into France. Oh, yeah. Why did she need to parachute into France? That's incredible. Just for the style. I guess it <laughs> sounds like style. a James Bond kind of thing. <laughs> I know. Like if they made a James Bond movie about her, but like if she was James Bond, she I know. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if it was one of those things where it's like, all right, Nancy, we got to get you back into France. You know, we've got a vehicle rigged up. We're going to have you on the How cover. How do you want to do it? She's like, I want to fucking parachute in. <laughs> right. And, and I wonder if they were like, Nancy, um, I mean, we can just drive it. No, 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 no. We're going to jump. <laughs> like, it, it, I'm you sure said it so nonchalantly, it caught me off guard. Like, oh, yeah, she trained as a secret agent in Saboteur. By the way, she parachuted back into France. Well, I mean, I thought that was quite common. So I was like, whatever. Oh, yeah. Sure. Because, <laughs> you know. Female, female in, in World War II just you know, parachuting into France after being trained as a secret agent. Totally common. <laughs> I mean. Apparently. <laughs> you know, so that was like part of the reason why I also wanted to bring her forward. <laughs> Fucking parachuting everywhere and shit. So anyway. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, yeah. So uh, she became a leading figure in the Marquis of the Arverne district. The Marquis is basically the French resist- resistance of that district. Um, and she was basically in charge of finance and, and obtaining arms and helped to forge the Marquis into a superb fighting force. She begins her autobiography with a statement, which I personally believe sums up her persona and her military contributions. I'm about to divulge expertly well. She says, and I quote, this is the story of a naive and rather sensitive young Australasian romantic who arrived in Paris in 1934, determined not to be uncouth and of how her experiences made her the woman who KO'd a waiter with her bare fist in a Paris club in 1945, end quote. And after I read that, I was like, I love this woman and I can't wait to keep reading more about her. (laughs) That's quite the introduction. Um, Yes. (laughs) Okay. So just a quick little background about where she was from. So yes, Nancy was born in Wellington in New Zealand in 1912. But however, she did live in Sydney for the majority of her childhood. So yeah, I understand how it might come across by saying Australia's wartime legend as she was born in New Zealand. But 
since she grew up in Australia, she's technically she's technically ours. So sorry, New Zealand. <laughs> it is quite the battle, kind of determining like, it, you know, where is she from? Is she from New Zealand? Is she from Australia? Technically, I classify New Zealand and Australia as like the same place, technically related in a sense. Whatever. Um, is that so? I don't think it matters. Is that um, culturally? If an Australian heard you say that you classified New Zealand and Australia as the same, is that an acceptable oh, I, view? Is that a common view uh, in Australia? I, I would be stoned to death probably or run over ah. by a truck. Yeah, probably not. I mean, we it's it's more of a like sibling relationship, I view it. Like people would be like, um, oh, I fucking, you know, New Zealanders and shit like that. But like – Okay. You know, we go to war together, so there's literally it's, Anzacs. It's, it's the United I mean, States it's, and Canada where yeah, it's, that's uh, yeah, exactly you it. You guys are Canada, we're the United yeah. States, and vice versa. Hey, leave Canada alone. Hey, leave the United States alone, but do not lump us together. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly that's, it. You summed it up perfectly. We're, we're, yeah. Canada, Canada very, Canada very peacefully, peacefully asked for independence from Britain. Um, yeah, we we were. We were the difficult child. <laughs> a little rougher. Yeah, you think edges, so? You know. Oh man. Yeah. yeah, I love my. I love. It's not like there was a war no, or anything. No war. No. no. Definitely not. <laughs> I, I I love my Canadian brothers and sisters to the north. I I, I truly do, and and God bless the sport of hockey. God bless Nanaimo yeah, bars, I was and say, God you're bless a Molson fan, beer. So. <laughs> I love hockey. I love Canada, but I digress. <laughs> anyway. Let's 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 continue. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> sidetracking a lot. Okay. In December 1932, she sailed out of Sydney Harbour on her way to New York to enroll in college, specializing in journalism. After graduating and traveling through New York, she went off to England and Nancy left eventually to get a job in Paris. At just 22 years old, she had been writing articles, conducting interviews, and selling them to press agencies. So evidently, she was doing quite well for herself in Paris. Officially, she ended up as a European correspondent for an American newspaper. Shortly after Hitler came to power in 1933, she mentioned in her book that she had witnessed more and more Germans attempting to leave their country. Ones that succeeded in doing so came to Paris. Ones that Nancy met were academics or intellectuals, and many of whom were Jews. Her admiration for these refugees grew, um, those from Germany, but also from Austria, and she'd often sought out their company. So... And she mentions in her book that she was always a good listener. And so she was able to hear the different views and perspectives of these um, people coming from um, Germany and Austria. Um, and she also mentions that, you know, despite their background, they were united by their principles, which I thought was really nice. Um, and, you know, living in France, Nancy kind of witnessed the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi movement firsthand. Um, and also while she visited, uh, she ended up visiting Vienna in Austria and she reported seeing roving Nazi gangs randomly beating Jewish men and women on the streets. And this kind of really appalled her. So, um, you know, she wrote that she vowed to do something about it. So you can kind of picture you know, this woman that is highly motivated by the um, injustice that she's seeing on the streets. So she's like, she really wants to do something about it, which I really respect the hell out of her for it. Um, in 1939, she settled in the south of France. And as mentioned earlier, Nancy married a wealthy Frenchman. His name was 
Henry Fioca. Uh, they got married just shortly after the war had broken out. Um, Nancy was in- anticipating Henry's farewell to the front, and she was entirely adamant on doing something useful in, in his absence. She was aware that France was short of ambulances and drivers, so she had acquired a vehicle that could be converted into an ambulance. And with that vehicle, she then joined a voluntary ambulance unit with um, to kind of contribute. After the fall of France in 1940, Nancy wrote that she had cried for a week when the armistice was signed. I wasn't fooled and anyone else with half a brain was in floods. Our freedom and everything we stood for had been dashed away with a stroke of a pen. She very soon joined the French resistance, becoming affiliated with a Scotsman by the name of Ian Garrow, who helped organize the local resistance movement. Initially, her role to begin with was to deliver packages and radio parts within within the resistance, which were all links in a secret change that smuggled prisoners and soldiers down escape lines and out of France. That's how she basically got the role as an escape courier. She, jo- she then joined one of the most successful escape lines run by a man named Pat Le- O'Leary, who had set up a, an arrangement to smuggle people out across the Mediterranean to Spain or over the Pyrenees to, into Spain. Her movements and work within the escape network put her on the Gestapo watch list, essentially. Her mail was beginning to be intercepted and her telephone was being tapped and she was even being followed. At this point, she made the decision to flee France, leaving her husband, Henry, behind. Unfortunately, Henry was later captured, tortured and executed by the Gestapo. And this broke my heart when I learned this, but sadly, Nancy wasn't aware of what happened to her husband until after the war ended. Um, that just... At, at this point, did she have that bounty on her head? Yes. So try with, with the bounty, the size that she had on her head, and her having fled, they went after her loved ones. And he, he was... He was very um, understanding of the risk. Um, from my from my understanding, she tried to convince him to come to come with her, but he had just he had too much that he wanted to um, stay behind. Like um, I, I can't re- recall specifically, but there, there was a lot he just couldn't leave behind himself. But he was aware of the risk, and yeah, unfortunately, he was just caught up. Um, yeah, so that was wow. really sad. How exactly did the Gestapo uh, figure out that she was somebody involved in this smuggling scheme? Um, or how did they get a whiff of her, if you know what I mean? That's a really good question. Um, well, basically, from my understanding, it was because... Um, I believe the Gestapo kind of got word of the amount of people that were getting smuggled in and out. I think she mentioned that the ring was actually um, someone betrayed them and actually uh, exposed them to the Gestapo. And there were several occasions where they were kind of like, as I mentioned, they they were actually following her. but she was able to kind of escape at that moment. So they were aware that it was kind of like she was quite prominent because she was getting away with so much. Um, but, yeah, so they were quite aware of her at the time, but she kept, um, you know, uh, what do I call it? Escaping out of their mists. Yes, pretty much, which kind of 
gave her the white mouse persona that the Gestapo actually gave her. Uh, she was incredibly elusive. Oh yeah, and effective. It must have been infuriating for the Gestapo and and, and Nazi leadership. That, oh yeah, uh, and, and uh, for a woman, no less. When it comes to checkpoints and uh, yeah, German patrols and checkpoints, like they they'd see a woman passing through or trying to get through checkpoints, and they wouldn't suspect a thing really at the time because it's like they would just imagine that she was like just a regular housewife going from point a to point b so she was really able to piss them off in that way because they wouldn't have any idea um yeah so basically um she was called the uh, white mouse uh officially for her uncanny ability to run rings around the gestapo in occupied france um in spite of uh, apparently a uh, 5 million franc price on her head, which I don't, I don't know the conversion at the time, but I suspect that's a lot of money. After successfully reaching Britain, Nancy joined the Special Operations Executive, or the SOE, to basically become a spy and was trained in several programs. She was learning, how, uh, learning crucial survival skills, weapon handling, hand-to-hand combat, combat and how to work with explosives. Uh, she was one of only 39 women in the SOE and was r- regarded as one of the most capable resistance fighters in France during the Second World War. In 1944, this is where Nancy parachuted back into France and her job was to prepare and arm the resistance fighters called the Marquis for the upcoming Allied invasion of mainland Europe, which was the Normandy invasion. So, I just thought that was really fascinating how that's like, this was like, in my opinion, a major kind of side operation to kind of help along the, the big one that everyone was, the allies were kind of aware of. Um, and at this time, Winston Churchill kind of basically set, instructed the spies of the SOE to quote, set Europe ablaze end quote. Um, and I just felt the need to add this quote in here from her, she said, I was desperate to return to France and continue working against Hitler. Neither air sickness nor looking like a clumsily wrapped parcel was going to, t- to deter me. And she kind of says this because I believe in my research and I didn't mention it. She actually, after landing, she got tangled in a tree. <laughs> so that's kind of the reasoning behind that quote. Um, <laughs> 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 I was curious as to the uh, air sickness is one thing, but the yeah, clumsily so wrapped parcel, that, that, I didn't know why. what that meant. Um, she said that because she got tangled in a tree. Um, yeah. Um, so she was basically involved in receiving parachute drops of weapons and ammunition, setting up wireless communications with England and recruiting and training members of, of the resistance, in this case, the Maquis. Um, and holy moly, I, this is something I really wanted to worth, uh, really wanted to mention. One of her most dangerous feats of this time was a bike ride to retrieve secret radio codes. In three days, she rode 400 kilometers or 248 miles for the upside down folks. Sorry. Okay. On a, <laughs> on a bike across mountainous terrain from Auvergne to Chateau and Chateau and back again. Um, 
and basically Nancy volunteered for this mission as she believed as a woman she could get away with pretending she was a young housewife going f- home to her village. Um, going home and, to her yeah. village yeah. 400 <laughs> kilometers away. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, how are they supposed to know, really? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, My you know, goodness. Yeah, in the lead up to the Allied landings in France in 1944, Nancy and the resistance waged an intensive campaign of sabotage against the uh, occupation forces. Um, according to the Australian Government of Veteran Affairs website, um, she has even been reported to have led a raid on the Gestapo headquarters at, at Mount Lucon in central France, resulting in the death of 38 German. So that is, in a nutshell, her contributions to World War Two in Germany specifically, and yeah. Wow! Yeah, and there we have it. Wow, um, White Mouse is um, it's it's appropriate, but at the same time, it just doesn't do justice no. to the lethality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Of Nancy. Yep. <laughs> she, I mean, my goodness. Parachuting, fucking bike riding 400 kilometers just to deliver and retrieve some secret radio codes and leading a raid on the Gestapo headquarters. Yeah. She's crazy. Wow. All right. Well, uh, excellent contribution to, to this episode uh, and, and someone who was entirely unknown to me so thank you for that next up we have knight who will introduce us to chevalier deon which i hope i said correctly a french diplomat spy and soldier with an interesting and truly one-of-a-kind story all right let's hear it thank you spartan on may 21st 1810 Miss Dayon was found dead at her residence by her housemate, Miss Cole. However, upon taking care of the body for burial, she made a shocking discovery. The woman that she and the whole world knew as a woman found that Dayon had a body of a male and was, quote, ordinary of a male in every way. Five days later, a clip of a newspaper would report the following, quote, the Chevalier Deon died at his lodging in New Millman Street, Gulfford Street, on Tuesday last. It will be remembered that a great doubt at one time existed to which gender he belonged, which, however, was set at rest by the verdict of twelve matrons who decided in favor of the female. And from that time to the present, he wore the costume of that sex. But on his decease taking place, it was unexpectedly discovered that the Chevalier was a perfect male. However, even 85 years later, newspaper articles would still wonder about Dayon's gender, despite using the feminine form of Dayon's title, Chevalier. Perhaps everyone at this point is wondering why I would bring up this person for Women's Equality Day. My reason is complex as Dayon's gender. For simplicity's sake, I think there are several reasons to discuss Dayon. First, transgender individuals have served and continue to serve in various militaries world over. Whether it be the Union soldiers during the American Civil War, or the present-day four-star Admiral Rachel Levine for the United States, transgender people play an important role in military history. 
and Dion has a role in that history. Secondly, Women's Equality Day, as you mentioned, Spartan, commemorates the day that women obtained the right to vote, and it should be noted that many who fought for that right did not want to just see women obtain the right to vote, but to be able to one day live their lives just as free as any man could live. With policy changes here in the United States in April of 2021, transgender women could now be freely open as women without fearing of being barred due to them simply being transgender. So there is this struggle for many transgender individuals to live freely as they are, regardless of time and place. And Dayon captures this struggle well. So those are some of the reasons why I'm including Dayon here, and I'll certainly go over her identity, the discussions around her identity later, though I will note that I'll be referring to Dion with she-her pronouns throughout my recounting. Born as Charles Genève Louis Auguste André Timothy de Eon de Beaumont, I will simply refer to her as Dion from this point forward, on October 5, 1728, in Tonnerre, France. Being declared a boy, she would live a life that many would consider to be normal for a boy who was to be an ambitious young nobleman. She would study to be a lawyer and learn the art of fencing in Paris. Dion's life would be a very typical one until 1756. For in 1756, Dion would be noticed by King Louis XV, who appointed her as a secretary for France's ambassador to front Russia. In appointing her as secretary, she was also inducted into the King's spy organization that was called Le Secret du Roi. The aim of this organization was to put Prince de Conti on the throne as King of Poland. The reason for this was to have Poland as a French satellite state. And it was figured that since French policies toward Poland and Russia were connected, de Eon's task would be to get France on Russia's good side. Note that Russia is led by Empress Elizabeth at this time. And the goal ultimately was to have, the, have Russia condone and possibly help in the endeavor to install Conti to the Polish throne. There was even a plan to have Dayan to convince Empress Elizabeth to capture Prussia and become the commander of the Baltic region that bordered Poland. During her time as secretary, Dion would carry letters back and forth between King Louis XV and Empress Elizabeth, with her hard work gaining notoriety to the French king. Also during this time, Dion would participate in Empress Elizabeth's masquerades, which were unique for the time, in a shorter word or two. In Elizabeth's masquerades, she not only did not allow masks to be worn over the face, which was certainly an odd change for a masquerade, but she also enforced the rule that everyone involved had to wear clothing of the gender they were not assigned to, as in if one was a man, then he would have to wear women's clothing, and if one was a woman, then they, she would have to wear men's clothing. Thus, in this situation, as described by one historian, the Aeon, in other words, would not have to pose as someone else, but rather, his same self would become female, in such a situation, both identity and sexuality were constant, but gender was isolated, deconstructed, and reconfigured. However, all these schemes would be ruined, and ironically, it would be Russia, along with Austria and Prussia, who would control parts of Poland near the end of the 1760s. 
much to France's demise or dismay. In May of 1761, Dion would become a captain of France's mounted infantry and fight in the Seven Years' War, and would even face combat at the Battle of Villenhansen in July of 1761. Her endeavors would be awarded with the Cross of Saint Louis for her military valor. Yeah, I, I actually have a question. Oh, sure. So going back, um, she was appointed by King Louis the Fifteenth as the secretary Correct. for France's ambassador to Russia, and mm -hmm. at this point, uh, being inducted into the King Spy Organization, she had. Correct been sent to Russia as a female, correct? Mm -hmm. No, at this point in time, she had not transitioned yet. Okay. Okay. Um, but oddly enough, Empress Elizabeth was holding masquerades where all participants were required to cross-dress. Oh, see, um, Elizabeth's masquerades, they were, that was, that was just how she had those masquerades, just constantly. Those were just the normal fares for her. She would have everyone not wear a mask, and everyone had to wear opposite clothing. Um, men had to wear women's clothing, and women had to wear men's clothing. And that was just how those things were held. She was entirely unique in that sense, for her day and for the whole world. Um, interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and funnily enough, her daughter, Catherine the Great... Um, oh, she would actually continue that tradition, except she would reintroduce the mask back, making it a masquerade. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> okay. Oh my. Okay, I think I'm on track. Yeah, hopefully. But yeah, at this time, just for context, uh, Dion has not transitioned yet. Okay. With the death of Empress Elizabeth and the notoriety that Dion gained with Louis XV, Dion would be transferred to London to facilitate a draft of what would become known as the Treaty of Paris that ended the Seven Years' War. While the treaty was being signed, the French king and his spy organization was plotting violence, kind of similar to how, you know, Japan and America were in the talks during World War II, and then Pearl Harbor happened. Right, right. Unbeknownst to the diplomats that were trying to agree to some type of peace with the United States before war broke out, right? Exactly. My goodness. And Dion would be the center of all these schemes. Louis XV would write an order that state basically stated that Dion would follow orders of the king to spy on England. And to just get a sense of what the dangers that if these plans were exposed, it, it shouldn't be underestimated, because if England got any sense about any of this, they would have invaded France almost inevitably. Hmm. So there was a lot of trust and secrecy being placed on Dayon by giving her these orders. Dayon used her position to make friends with England's higher-ups, but that came at a cost for a lot of money because she would go to like the orchestras or these theaters or just the places where you know the higher ups hanged out right she would make friends with them but all that came at a cost and france just having lost the seven years war you know 
they're not willing to like spend that much. <laughs> yep, yep. So when she was reprimanded for her lavish living, Dion was ordered back to France. First, it was by her higher ups within the Spire organization. Then she refused that and said that it was the king who placed me here, so it has to be the king who has to take me back. And then the king said, come back to France. And she still refused. And in response to this order to come back, her response was an ultimatum. Dion would publish to the English public, this is England, to the whole English public, a 200-page book of the letters that were between herself and others within the spy organization. Now, mind you, these were all gossips and just just the gossipy kind of stuff, nothing too serious or too deep. It also didn't include the king's order. However, you can imagine this was just a huge, big shock to France. Because, like, suddenly, oh yeah, <laughs> this person who is very central to everything we are doing within the spyrocization just released a whole bunch of letters. Like, today, equivalently, this is like a big email leak. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I was just thinking, yeah, the publicity-wise, I mean, it, it's not a good look. Oh, no, it was huge, and all the French and France's side was just absolutely going wild with this. Just not wild as in, like, a good way, but as in, like, they just got very nervous. And here's the person who just did this, and she hasn't even revealed the king's order yet, but she could. Like, that was within her power. She could. And that's the thing. She not only is willing to do something like this, but she even has power to do some really detrimental stuff. So because of all that, the king, King Louis XV, consented to Dion's wishes, at the cost of Dion being essentially exiled in London. So it's kind of this weird thing where Dion will get to live lavishly in London, spying for the French, but is also not allowed back in France. <laughs> Awkward situation. Part of the problem was she felt like she was being bossed around unnecessarily. Um, because she's trying here to make deals with the higher-ups. But of course, that the money. <laughs> money here. Um, so she's trying to do this great thing that's obviously going to serve the interests of France, but they're not having it. It seems like France isn't having it. And so there is frustration at that level going on here. And it's like, hey, look, if you want me to do my job, then let me do my job. <laughs> so, this leads to the next portion of her being a woman. This is her actual transition time. During her time at London, due to her androgynous looks, rumors spread that Dion was born a woman. And it is debated whether Dion actually was the originator of these rumors, or if these rumors just originated of their own accord. But regardless, Dion would validate these rumors with her autobiography. Making a making entirely up a story about basically how she was raised, born, and she was born a female, raised male by a terrible father who wanted to guarantee his possessions be passed down, and so she had to do fight in these wars, participate in 
male society, and then she's finally able to live her life as a woman. The mystery of Aeon's sex was such that people would place bets on what it was. People placed bets on whether it was male or female. And due to these bets, her life was in constant danger. And as a response to keep her safe, the English Chief Justice John Mansfield legally recognized Dayon as a woman to settle the debate. Just, she's female, that's the end of it. Then, on Francis' side, Louis XV died, and Louis XVI came to power, and he disbanded the entire spy organization of his predecessor. In doing so, he had a big motivation to bring Dayon back to France, since, like, Dayon no longer has the job and still kind of has, you know, as Spartan had kind of said, the dirt. So there was this effort to bring Dayon back to France. And eventually, through lots of coaxing and a lot of back and forth, Dayon obliged. She would become, back in France, a huge role model for women in her final years in the public sphere. Coincidentally, Mary Wollstonecraft, the famous early feminist writer, for instance, would use Dayon as an example of the possibilities of what women can achieve should they be given the training. And there was even people who referred to her as the miracle that such a woman was able to accomplish some of these feats that were uniquely given to men. And by uniquely, as in kind of role-wise, referring to the battles that she participated in. Eventually, she would be forced to exile back to England to pay off her debts. And unfortunately, she had to eventually sell off her quite extensive library. And even so, she would die in poverty with the widow, Mrs. Cole. Finally, I guess I come to the point to discuss about her identity. There are many conflicting details that surround Dayon's identity, as you can imagine. But what really is at the heart and center of the questions is how much of Dayon's participation, if any, as a woman was legitimate, and how much of that was just another part of being an enigmatic spy. Because uh, she obviously lived a whole life as a spy, and one of the big things that catalyzed her transition was the disillusionment with the French government. Yeah. Because she or she was this huge important part of the spying operation and literally the whole government just failed well not to mention her commitment to it i mean yeah she's because she was very committed she was yeah she was very committed um because she had the medals of honor the honor of um saint louis the medal of saint louis she, like she put effort and time into this and just nothing cut back from it and they even seem to resent or dislike her and so there was this disillusionment and this disillusionment like really catalyzed her transitioning and so i am of the opinion that she was entirely legitimate in her endeavors of being a woman 
because she not only put effort into reinforcing the rumors that would have casted her as a woman, I mean, she's trying to appeal to an audience that thinks gender is biology. And so it makes sense to lie about your biology in order to justify in society in that way. Right. But also, on top of that, her memoirs and combined with her religious change, talking about her transformation with her gender transformation, attest to the idea that she really felt like it really seems like she wanted to transition. And this was a time there's like no hormones, there's no sex change operations. So like that's not on the table for her. So I I, I really don't want to use the word transgender because that is a modern term referring to modern things. Sure. But she really is a symbol of we could at least say gender bendy <laughs> and prefiguring our modern notions of transgender in this modern day. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and for her time, I mean, she 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 was used and and I'm going to use the word used uh, at the sake of stating it multiple times in one sentence. She was used by her government both as male and female to their benefit. Less so on the when she became a woman, but yeah, in a way, yeah. And it, it, it's interesting how quickly once they had, I guess, felt or determined, whether it be an emotional or rational decision or a moral or ethical decision, that they had gotten everything that there was to be gained from uh, the from from day on it, it turned into well we're done with you at this point and yes they 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 dropped her and like you stated she would die in poverty um, <laughs> she was forced back into exile in England to pay debts like hey Great, you're in France. Awesome. Hey, uh, we're bringing you back home. Thanks for your service. Pay your debts. Good luck to you. We're done here. Let me wipe my hands of our relationship. Part of that was also because there was a change, of course, in Keynes. Um, right. The relationship was with Keynes was the 15th, not the 16th. Correct. Right. <laughs> and also another big part was... Her pensions got cut because of the French Revolution, um, which so. which occurred right after. Yeah, and I, w I was looking at that in, in regards to the timeline and in relation to the American Revolutionary War, and mm. um, France went into uh, quite a bit of debt financing the the second half and really the latter half of the American Revolution, and but the the American Revolution. Um, also greatly influenced the French Revolution, which followed and was around uh, these same times when you look at uh, moving into the 1800s, uh, when, when Dion died, uh, it was around that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and money was, was a significant issue. So yeah, when we're looking at cut and cost, uh, Dion would have been small fish. 
but at the same time, mm-hmm. I can pinch my pennies here. <laughs> so that's the story of Chevalier Dayon, and I enjoyed researching her. I am, I am actually going to continue researching her even after this podcast, because she's just a complicated topic. Sure. And such an interesting figure. No, for sure. And uh, thank, thank you for that. I appreciate you bringing that to to uh, to the group here. All right. Last on the list is the woman that I researched. She has been described as one of the greatest movie actresses of all time. Hedy Lamar also played a critical role in the development of technology, which paved the way for later military tech and formed the basis for the Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth capabilities that we enjoy today. So uh, hats off to Hedy Lamar for my wireless headset, which I'm using to record this podcast. Hedy Lamar, originally born Hedwig Eva Keisler, was an Austrian-American. Uh, she became American later in life, clearly. Born in Vienna on November 9th, 1914, to a well-to-do family. Her father, a bank director, and her mother, a concert pianist. Lamar's skill and interest in technology is considered to have been influenced by her father's attention, who, according to womenhistory.org, as well as multiple other sources, spoke to her of how machines and technology worked while on long walks in her earliest years. Reportedly, she took apart a music box at the age of five, curious as to how the inner mechanisms made it work. Lamar was recognized, at least in the United States and around the world, for many years for her beauty in her teens early on and quickly made it to the screen, starring in her first film in 1930 at the young age of 16. Two years later, she garnered international attention for her beauty and acting in the Czech film Ecstasy. Lamar's later contributions and understanding of wartime weaponry is rooted and her marriage to an Austrian munitions dealer by the name of Fritz Mandel, whom she married in 1933. So at this point, she would have been 19 years old. Uh, Clearly, uh, again, um, it seems like she was probably being taken advantage of, having starred in her first film at 16. Um, And I don't want to give too much credit to this guy because you'll find out he's he's quite the ass. but I, I, a lot of it was also due to her father and, and the way that uh, he taught and raised her. Moving on, Mandel was an ass of a man and, typical of the times, treated her as something that he owned. Um, there's some quotes that, that I saw during the research where she said that she felt that she was his doll, uh, that, that she was more of an object. Mandel also courted relationships with business partners known to be affiliated with the Nazi party and fascist Italy. On a side note, she apparently played host during one of these meetings to Benito Mussolini himself. As the obedient host to Mandel and his associates, Lamar was privy to many a conversation specific to military technology. 
smart woman that she was, playing host and smiling and being the obedient one, was also listening in, uh, which greatly benefited her later in life. She fled to London, God bless her, in 1937, leaving her douchebag of a husband behind. Thank goodness. Good for her. (laughs) Yeah. As often is the case, her move to London also was crucial in her future contributions to military history. Had he met Louis B. Mayer of MGM Studios, still incredibly uh, relevant today. No way. (laughs) And Yeah, right. And shortly rocketed to fame in Hollywood. It was here that she met a businessman and pilot named Howard Hughes. The two began dating. Hughes was an innovator and quickly took notice of Lamar's brilliance in technology and mechanics. In her trailer, Hughes ensured she had a small inventing table to use during off time between takes. Of course, she also created at home, but the addition of a table in her trailer meant that when inspiration struck, she could act on it while on the job in Hollywood and kept up her ongoing work between home and her job in Hollywood, which I think is really incredible. Um, Here we have someone who is clearly brilliant, which we'll get to, but is being doted on for her beauty, for her, for her acting capabilities and has gone from Europe to America. And her, her focus is still on being innovative. It's, it's almost like she's leading a double life. Like she's being presented as this actress, but realistically she's a genius, but nobody knows about it at this stage, do they? I think some people knew about it. Uh, Hughes obviously um, knew about it because, like like was stated, he did ensure that she had a small uh, inventor's table available in her trailer. He encouraged it, which at the time was probably unusual, um, given that, forgive me, uh, women had their place, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's wonderful that that this this was made available to her. But I think you're absolutely correct. I think this speaks to the fact that while she was doing what she did in Hollywood and, and playing the game, yeah, her love and her focus was still on being an innovator, being yeah. being an inventor and creating new technology. And the general yeah. public would not have been aware of that because to the general public, she was just typical Hollywood actress. Yes. Yes. At the time, uh, this, this was known to her and her closest confidants and even her closest, uh, aside from a few specifically, uh, mentioning Hughes again, would have probably paid no mind to this. Hughes actually owned an airline business at the time and Lamar decided that she would improve on his, his designs. So she based her plans on natural features of fish and birds. So she had asked for books on fish and birds, knowing that they had fins, they had wings, as do airplanes. And she used the natural anatomy of fish and birds to contribute to Hughes's airplane business, which was quite effective, quite successful prior to, but even more so after she had become involved. But 
She also worked to improve plane designs that could be used by the U.S. military. So here she was already thinking before the outbreak of World War II of benefiting the United States military. Hedy Lamar's distaste for the Nazi party almost assuredly deepened by her previous marriage to Mandel and her interaction with his business partners. Again, reminding uh, listeners that this was uh, Nazi party members as well as fascists, uh, to include Benito Mussolini, led her to innovative war contributions in support of the Allied powers later in World War II. She also started an MGM letter-writing campaign that generated 2,144 letters to servicemen and appeared at the Hollywood Canteen, where she signed autographs for off-duty G.I. Joes. Now, how exactly, outside of raising war bonds, did Lamar contribute to military technology and later, Wi-Fi, as we know it today? The actress and inventor decided that she would tackle an issue in the United States Navy, specifically its torpedoes and their detection by the enemy. It is worth mentioning that the United States Navy had issues with various types of torpedoes during World War II. Uh, Anyone studied in uh, United States naval history specific to World War II is well aware of this. It was both disastrous and embarrassing. The most notorious torpedo with issues being the Mark 14. Mark 14 was supposed to be the pinnacle of the Navy's torpedo arsenal and the most effective anti-ship weapon. Steam-powered, the torpedo could travel over 5 miles and reach speeds of almost 53 miles per hour, or 85 kilometers per hour and over there speak. Before detonating and bombarding an enemy vessel's hull with over 600 pounds of explosives. So basically, it was deadly for its time. Uh, For context, modern-day torpedoes travel over 60 miles per hour. I did not convert that into over there speak. However, the torpedoes were flawed. They often exploded too early. They did not explode at all. Or worse, they circled back and hit the vessel that launched them. My goodness. What an epic failure. (laughs) My goodness. From wearethemighty.com. In one extreme case, a submarine commander fired all but one of his 16 torpedoes. Of the 15 shots he took, 12 hit the target, only one of those 12 exploded. And that explosion was at the wrong time. The Japanese target got away with minimal damage. It was also reported that some Japanese vessels pulled into port in Japan, with Mark 14s sticking out of their hulls, unexploded. So, (laughs) adding insult to injury. (laughs) So, when you couple enemy capabilities and thwarting American torpedo attacks with the high rate of dud Mark 14s, there wasn't much success to be had in firing on enemy vessels. You'd almost ask yourself, what's the point? The issue of torpedo effectiveness was corrected by the Navy, but enemy detection was still a significant factor. It was here that a great opportunity for Lamar existed. Lori Norris of the National Archives wrote that Lamar's idea was to create a system that constantly changed frequencies, making it difficult for the access powers to decode the radio messages. 
the invention would help the Navy make their torpedo systems become more stealthy and make it less likely for the torpedoes to be rendered useless by enemies. So here we have the mission, right? How this mission was accomplished was that Lamar did this, basically she conceptualized and designed the mechanism and enlisted the help of George Anthiel. He was a composer for MGM. So she's pulling on Hollywood resources here. To assist with the frequency changes, which were inspired by his skill on the piano. So music played a huge role in the design for these, these radio-controlled torpedoes that Lamar and Anthiel designed together, which I think is just beautiful, being a musician. The product was dubbed a secret communication system using a technology created by Lamar that she called Frequency Hopping Spread Spectrum. Essentially, the radio-controlled torpedo was protected from the enemy by switching frequencies in a pre-programmed pattern which prevented the enemy from jamming the signal. The piano tied into this as follows, from an article in The Atlantic. Lamar's invention envisioned a torpedo and a guidance transmitter equipped with identical player piano sheets. Yeah, player piano sheets that run along a simultaneous pseudo-random sequence. Without knowing the exact pattern of the frequency hops, the enemy cannot interpret the signal, meaning Lamar's torpedo has much better security. Electrical and computer engineering professor Ian Akildes explained it as, suppose you're sending something on channel five. When an intruder finds out that you're sending the entire information on channel five, he or she can take everything you were sending off channel five and reconstruct it. But when you hop around, the intruder cannot capture this hopping and he cannot reconstruct the information. So from this security's perspective, it is perfect. So here we have an electrical and computer engineering professor who's basically stating that the design of Lamar and Antheil would have been perfect it is notable that they are basing their technology off of player piano sheets. This was an issue for the Navy. Uh, if anybody uh, is familiar with player pianos, um, they're, they're those pianos were right in the center above the keys and, and uh, basically on, on, on the front facing facade of the piano's body, there's a sliding door and you could clip in this roll of paper where there were holes cut into it and the piano would play itself where you it, it would it would roll uh unroll the roll of paper and there was this this metal uh sort of tube or or panel that sucked in air and based on where those cuts were made in the paper the keys would automatically depress and play the music they're not small mechanisms. So the Navy had an issue with the size in their mind of what, what would be required to house player piano mechanism and the role inside of the torpedo tube, as well as inside these, because that was the receiving end, right? Because it was to be controlled, the torpedo, as well as from the sending end. Now, uh, during the research, I did discover that, that um, 
Antiel had shown that it could have been done on a much smaller scale. Uh, so much as arguing that the mechanism could have been as small as what would have fit into a wristwatch. But the Navy, the Navy was not on board. Hopefully that provides a decent enough explanation. Um, oh, like I, f- I feel like even after that was a really good explanation, but that yeah. was really hard to also visualize. It sounds so complicated. And, and that's, that's what turned but, the Navy off to it, uh, especially considering they were in the, the, the middle of World War II at the time, right? So essentially so, it wasn't like user-friendly, let's say. Uh, not not according to the Navy's perspective, no. Yeah, yeah. So the Navy rejected the invention and concluded that the mechanism was both too bulky to fit into a torpedo, as well as being way too ahead of its time. That appeared to be the end of it until 1957, when Sylvania Electronic Systems Division of Buffalo, New York, adopted the concept and replaced the player piano rolls with electronics that developed into technology for secure military communications. The tech was installed on ships and sent to blockade Cuba in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. After Lamar and Antheil's patent had expired. So they had applied for this for this uh, patent back in um, I want to say the nineteen I think it was nineteen fifties. Yeah. So here we have a an ingenious design, maybe too complicated by by some people's uh, uh, judgment, but um, it was taken and as technology advanced taken up by an electronic systems company who waited for the patent to expire and capitalized off of it. The American dream. In the end, Lamar and Antheil never received a dollar of monetary compensation for their efforts. Although it was her spread spectrum technology that helped to invent what would form the basis of modern wireless communication technology. We're talking cell phones, we're talking Bluetooth, we're talking Wi-Fi. If you can remotely connect to your printer, if you were remotely connected to any piece of technology while listening to this podcast, you've got Hedy Lamar and George Antheil to thank for it because their early technology pioneered our current technology. At the time of her death in 2000, the age of 85, Hedy Lamar was still inventing her son. So 85 years old, 85 years old, Hedy Lamar is like, hey, still got my table, still got my tools, still have ideas. Yeah. <laughs> End time. Yeah. Her son, Anthony Loader, said of Lamar and her frequency hopping concept, she would love to be remembered as someone who contributed to the well-being of humankind. Aw. I'm going to end her story there by simply stating that the fact that the three of us are currently sitting uh, in two different locations on the East Coast of the United States, and one of us far away in Australia, this is all due to the efforts of individuals like Eddie Lamar and George Antheil. Who are way ahead of their time. (laughs) 
oh, way ahead of t- uh, way ahead of their time, as the Navy as the Navy stated when they rejected her her technology. Imagine if they actually accepted the concept at the time, like how different like it might have changed the war. Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to say. It it really is, and I mean the the, the Navy did eventually uh, work out solutions to their issues. Uh, what's unfortunate is that they were never compensated for their efforts. I mean, this woman lived to the year 2000. But here she is at the age of 85, still working at her inventor's table. Yeah. There you have it, listeners. We are uh, done with episode four. Um, Women's e- Equality Day and uh, the Women's Equality Day special and and women's contributions in military history. I uh, hope, hope you enjoyed uh, our efforts and the research and the variety that we brought to the episode. Again, uh, you can find us on Historical Studies Military History Discord, on our Twitter or Instagram, all of which will be available uh, through our show notes, uh, found on our link tree and the episode description. Join us Wednesday next week for episode five, the Battle of Manila, 1899. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.